Please pray with me. Father Almighty, I pray that you would wake our hearts up. I pray that you would draw us close to yourself. And I pray that we would become people who are willing to strive and struggle with you in prayer. Amen. If you were actually hoping that I would explain that passage out of Mark, you're kind of out of luck. I'll gladly talk with you about it later, but I'm going to leave it aside today because I actually want to talk about Psalm 80 and Isaiah 64. In order to talk about these two passages, though, I need to actually start in Genesis 32. And don't get nervous because I'm not going to track through every single chapter along the way to get there. In Genesis 32, we find one of the most mysterious stories in the Bible, and yet it's also one of the most important. Jacob has fled from his father-in-law with this enormous caravan, his wives and children and thousands of animals and servants and no doubt men and women who worked in his camp. It would have been like a small moving town. He's fled from his father-in-law, who was also his boss, who was also his uncle, If you ever wonder how awkward Thanksgiving dinner might be, imagine that person being one and the same all together. He's fled from him, and he's going back to the land that God had promised to his grandfather, Abraham. And yet he's about to face his brother Esau. He's terrified, because when he left, he left on a run because Esau had sworn to kill him, because he had cheated Esau out of the blessing and birthright. He's headed back into the land with his caravan, and he's worried about Esau, and so he sends men ahead. He's investigating the territory, and he hears words that terrify him all the more. Behold, Esau is coming to you, and there are 400 men with him. Now, Jacob's entourage was large, but there is no way that he had 400 men who could draw a sword in his camp. And he is justly terrified. His brother is going to carry out the oath he swore years ago and kill him. Kill him for the fact that he cheated him. And so Jacob, ever the schemer, devises a plan. He takes hundreds of animals and he splits them into multiple droves and he sends them ahead of them and he tells the servant leading each drove of animals, when you get to Esau, say to him, these are a gift from your servant Jacob. He's laying himself at the feet of his brother and trying to appease him with this wealth. And so the idea is that Esau will meet the first drove and receive this huge gift and then the second and then the third. But this isn't enough. Jacob also takes his own family and all that remains of his herds in his caravan, and he splits them into two camps. And his thinking is simple. Perhaps one of these two camps will escape. Perhaps in the end, he will be left with half of his family, half of his possessions. And the night before this encounter, he crosses a small brook, leaves his family and camp there with the animals and the servants, and goes back across the brook by himself. And you can imagine him in the darkness, terrified and scared, anxious and unable to sleep. But in that darkness, suddenly a man appears. And this man does the strangest thing because he comes up to Jacob and he begins to wrestle with him. 
two grown men sweating, dirty, flipping each other over in the dirt, trying to get mastery over the other. Neither can actually overcome each other. It's a stalemate. I say this as a wrestler. Spent a lot of time in high school wrestling all the time. There comes a point in a match where you know you can't win. You always hope it's the other guy who comes to that realization and not you. But there comes a moment when the muscles are seized up and you know, I cannot defeat this person. It's one of those stalemates and they groan and stretch and pull and trip. Neither can win. And so the man reaches out his hand and touches Jacob's hip. And at that moment, it collapses. It dislocates and he can't stand. But Jacob doesn't try to flee. He doesn't plead for mercy. Instead, he hangs on. And the man says, let me go. Dawn is here. And he clings to him. And he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. It's the strangest statement. I will not let you go unless you bless me. Doesn't make sense. And yet the man looks at Jacob and he says, what is your name? And he says, Jacob. And he says, your name is no longer Jacob. Your name is Israel. Because you have striven with man and with God and you have prevailed. Israel is a combination of two words in Hebrew. God and wrestle. And you throw those two words together and the name Israel can either mean this one wrestles with God or it can also mean God wrestles for this one. He gives him this new name and he breaks his hip. Names are significant in the Old Testament. They oftentimes convey a sense of identity. Previously, Jacob's name had meant one who catches the heel And although it was probably given by his parents in innocence, he grabbed his brother's heel at birth, it became the story in the identity of his life. He caught people by the heel to trip them, to deceive them, to cheat them. Think back to that moment when he stole his brother's blessing. He was one who tripped and cheated by catching someone by the heel. But in this blessing, God changes his name from Jacob to Israel. You are no longer defined by the fact that you catch people by the heel and cheat them and trick them. You are defined now by the fact that you wrestle with God. And you are defined now by the fact that because you are willing to wrestle with God, God will wrestle for you. Something is added, though, to this name change, this identity change. That hip was not insignificant for the rest of his life. Jacob limped. He walked with a cane. He leaned on his staff to make progress. He was defined now, not just by the fact that he had wrestled with God and that God would wrestle for him, but he was defined now by the fact that he was weak. Previously, he had been strong, a proto-bodybuilder. There's this great scene. This is how he wins his first love. This great scene where he arrives at a well and all the shepherds are gathered there. There's a huge stone over the well. And he asks, why don't you water the sheep? And they say, we need all the rest of the shepherds to get in because this stone's really heavy. And Jacob says, watch me, and flips it off the well. He was a beast of a man. He was strong. 
but now he is defined by the fact that he is weak. God changed his identity in this moment. Your strength is now not what you possess in yourself. Your strength is not what you took confidence in before. Your strength is now not in what you thought you could do and what you were good at. Instead, your strength is now very simply the fact that you were willing to wrestle with God for his blessing. You were willing to cling to him no matter what. Because of that, God will wrestle on your behalf. His identity was changed. The reason why I tell this story is very simple. This name, this identity, is what gets passed down to the people of God. They are not called Jacobites. They are called Israelites. It's this that defines who they are as a people. They are defined by the people who are weak in and of themselves, and yet who wrestle with God for his blessing. And because they know their weakness and are willing to wrestle with God for his blessing, God wrestles for them. That becomes their identity. And you can think of example after example in the Old Testament of this basic reality. They know their weaknesses. They strive with God for his blessing and salvation and protection. And so God fights for them. You think about Exodus, the most powerful man on the planet, Pharaoh, and God fights with him on behalf of the weak slaves because they know their weakness and they've wrestled with God. You think about David facing Goliath. You think about Gideon going out with his thousands of soldiers and God saying, narrow it down to 300 and don't let them take weapons. One of my favorite examples of this, Jehoshaphat, 2 Chronicles 20, being invaded, armies coming at him, he prays and then he sends the temple choir out in advance and they walk towards the advancing armies singing praises to God and God routes the enemy. Over and over, we see this reality. You are weak, wrestle with God for his blessing, and God will wrestle for you. This becomes the identity of the people of God, that God would fight for them if only they would fight with God. God would fight for them if only they would fight with God. That sounds strange, does it not? God will fight for you if you would fight with him. God will strive for you, wrestle for you, if you would, in your weakness, wrestle with him. This is what these two chapters, Psalm 80 and Isaiah 64, are all about. In them we see examples of the people of God in their weakness, wrestling with God that God might wrestle on their behalf. Look at Isaiah 64. In Isaiah 64, you see, look at these first few verses. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil to make your name known to your adversaries, then that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remember you in your ways. Isaiah is pleading that God would tear apart the heavens and descend. He's pleading for another Sinai. When fire would consume the mountaintops, when everybody would be shaking in fear, when the whole earth would be quaking, he is 
praying that God would show up in a visible and powerful way. He is wrestling with God, saying, show up. You did it before. You did it at Sinai. Show up. Wrestling and pleading that God would wrestle for him. But the admission that follows is startling. Look at the middle of verse 5. It says, Behold, you are angry and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and you have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. The admission is startling. The people are in this desperate strait that causes Isaiah to say, God, please show up. They're in this desperate strait because they actually neglected God. In other words, it's their fault. They are the ones guilty for the fact that God is distant and silent and pushing himself away from them. They are the guilty ones. But even in spite of the fact that they deserve what they're getting, Isaiah continues to wrestle. Look at the way it ends. He says, but now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. It's like he's saying to God, but you made us. Yes, I know we're guilty, but you made us. It's in your hands, ultimately, what happens to us. He's wrestling and fighting with him. And he says, don't be angry with us. Don't keep remembering our sins. Isaiah is pleading with God in spite of the fact that they deserve exactly what they've gotten. Psalm 80 uses different imagery, but the point is the same. Glance at verse 8. It says, you brought a vine out of Egypt and cast out the nations and planted it. You made room for it, and when it had taken root, it filled the land. The hills were covered with the shadow of it, and the boughs thereof were like the mighty cedar trees. It stretched out its branches to the sea and its boughs to the river. Why have you broken down its hedge so that all those who go by pluck off its grapes? The wild boar out of the wood roots it up, and the wild beast of the field devour it. God has abandoned his vineyard. And Asaph, the psalmist, is reminding him of this. And yet, in Old Testament imagery, God only abandons his vineyard when his vineyard rejects and abandons him. Every Jew hearing this poem knows the story, that they are guilty, because God never walks away from his vineyard unless his vineyard says, we want nothing to do with you. In other words, they are the guilty, just like that time when Isaiah was praying. But in spite of this, Asaph continues to pray and to wrestle, saying over and over again, restore us again. Show us the light of your countenance. Show us your shining face, and we will be healed. We will be made whole. He prays it over and over in this psalm. Restore us. Fix us. He knows they're the guilty ones, and yet he wrestles and strives with God. Even in this prayer that he repeats over and over, he's actually throwing God's own words back at his face. In number six, God said to the priests, this is how you bless the nation. And he gave a blessing to Aaron, and the words of the blessing said, God will lift up his face upon you and show you peace. 
The words of the blessing speak of God's face shining on his people. And out of that shining of his face, grace and peace and healing coming. And so when Asaph says, restore us again, show the light of your countenance and we will be made whole. He's holding God accountable to his very words that he gave to Aaron. I know we're sinful. I know we're the problem. And yet, once upon a time, you told Aaron, this is the blessing I'll give to my people. I'll show them my face, and they will be healed when they see it. And so he says, I'm going to hold you to your word, even though we don't deserve it right now. Wrestling and striving with God. In both of these passages, we get a picture of what it means to wrestle with God. We see that wrestling with him is primarily an act of prayer. I don't think any of us will likely get an opportunity to do that physical wrestling that Jacob did. Perhaps a good thing. We see in these passages that wrestling with God is primarily an act of prayer. And we see in this that God's people should be free in prayer to remind God what he's done in the past. Think of Isaiah 64. You did it before. It's Sinai. Why won't you do it now? If our children said this to us as parents, we'd be like, that's out of line. I make my own decisions. I've got a reason. for." But God gives his children the freedom to say, you did it before. Do it again. He gives his freedom, the people, the freedom to say, these are the words you spoke before, and I'm going to hold you to those words. He gives his people the freedom to strive with him in a way that seems over the line to a lot of us. He gives his people the freedom to strive with him in that way, even when it's their own sin that's caused the mess. How many times has your sin made you feel like, I don't have the right to be in the presence of God right now? I want to back away from him and I'm scared to pray. I, I don't deserve to be able to say these things. But in both of these passages, we see his people given the freedom to actually strive with him, to step into his presence and to say, you've done it for others, do it for me. You made me after all. I'd like to be different too. I need you to show up and do this for me. He gives his people the freedom to be that cheeky, that forward. I think sometimes we are very simply too polite doesn't seem right to talk to God like that. But God named his people Israel. He did not name them the polite ones. He named them Israel, the people who would struggle and strive and wrestle and fight with God if necessary, to fight with him in prayer. The question for you, the question for me is very simply, do you feel that freedom? Do you feel the freedom to actually pour out your grief before him and say, why haven't you shown up yet here? Why haven't you fixed this yet? Do you feel the freedom to do that even when it's your sin? That's the problem. Even when you've caused the very mess that you're in. Are you willing to struggle and fight as long as necessary? Even if it's like Jacob, staying up all night long. Oftentimes we are too polite, as if God would be bothered if he actually heard what we were struggling with and fighting with. Perhaps we don't actually believe that God will answer those prayers. And so we say a cursory, please help me, and go off on our own way, because we don't think God's probably going to show up after all. 
or maybe it's too deeply ingrained in us that we just need to take care of ourselves, that we need to fix our own problems, pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. Whatever the reason that we neglect this striving, we are neglecting a gift that we've been given. And we're neglecting more than a gift because we're neglecting the call of the people of God. Remember what defines the people of God? They know their weakness. And so they struggle with God for his blessing and protection. And they wait for him to move on their behalf. The answer to those prayers will oftentimes not be what we expect or what we would have chosen. Jacob said, bless me, and he got a broken hip and a name change. I doubt that was what he was looking for as he's about to face his brother with 400 men. And yet it was what he needed. It was what he needed. He needed to learn that his strength was not in himself, and he needed to learn that his identity needed to be in the fact that he was allowed to strive with God and that God would therefore strive with him. The blessings are oftentimes not what we expect. They're not what we want. But those blessings will be exactly what we need. God's stripping away the things that we turn to for strength. If you, in the moment of those strivings and strugglings with God, feel his convicting eye, don't run from it. Don't push away. Don't flee from his purifying fire. If you feel him calling you to a deeper dependence on him, don't run. His blessings aren't oftentimes what we expect or what we want, but they are what we need. And in those moments, come close. Come close. I find it beautiful the way that Psalm 64 and Psalm 80 were, I mean, Isaiah 64 and Psalm 80 were answered. Psalm 64 Psalm 80, pray for the blessing of God. In Psalm 80, Asaph says, show us the light of your face and we will be made whole. And you say, how does God show the light of his face? It's in the person of Jesus, looking with tenderness upon people. And they are made whole in that process. People whose bodies are broken, whose spirits are broken, who feel that no one loves them, and who are running and running and running. In the eyes of Jesus, the face of God shines on his people, and they are made whole. Was that the answer Asaph was expecting? I doubt it. But it's so much better and so much more beautiful. Isaiah 64 says, tear the heavens apart and come down. He's expecting another Sinai. God descending in earthquake and fire, and the mountains quaking, and people fleeing in fear. But when are the heavens actually torn? And when does God descend? It's at the baptism of Jesus, when the heavens are split apart and the Spirit descends like a dove. And why does God descend in that moment in the torn heavens? Because the Son of God is standing in the water with sinners, saying, I'm one with you. I'll be with you in this. Jesus, sitting on the anxious bench with people as they sweat, scared of their own repentance, frightened of their own sin, sitting there with them. That's the moment when God tears the heavens apart and answers Isaiah's prayer finally. That's the moment when God descends. The answers that God gives are not what we expect. They are better, more important, more significant. Don't run from them if they're not what you long for. 
The answers that we receive will be found in the person and work of Christ because he is the Father's ultimate answer to all of our prayers. This is the moment when we look back to what he's done, his incarnation in life, and look forward to his coming again. That's what the season of Advent's about. And in this moment, we have a reminder every single day that the Lord has answered our prayers and that he will again answer our prayers. Look to Jesus. Look to his birth, his willingness to be with you, like you, to humble himself. But look also to his coming again, his glory, his victory. Bracketed by those two things, we have the freedom to struggle and strive with God in prayer. Don't hesitate because of shame or politeness or independence or any other reason. Amen.